Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians in private practice become the clinicians that they want to be. We have one-on-one and group mentoring for those who'd value coaching and guidance on applying a BPS approach to their practice and managing all the challenges that come along when working with humans who have pain. So if interested, reach out at tkex.org and join our Facebook discussion group for all the goss. So today, expanding on our misinformation series and perhaps getting onto the inoculation series, today I have two distinguished guests with unique professional backgrounds. We have Alex Murray and Travis Pollan. Both have been on our podcast before, multiple times actually, and I highly recommend checking them out. And we're going to dive into some questions regarding inoculation, frameworks for pain, uh, which treatments we identify with, and the value of having a, a filter amongst all the sea of different opinions and perspectives. So gentlemen, it's a pleasure having you both on again, and thank you for making the time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We've had the infamous question of what's your story, and that to be honest, can take half the podcast. So I'm going to cut it short to who are you? And Travis, if you don't mind going first, and then Alex. Sure. Uh, just uh, when you said this podcast is going to be about misinformation, I thought that's kind of funny. Like we're going to spread misinformation, but that's of course, we're, we're trying to inoculate against that. So I, uh, I'm an exercise science professor. I teach at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And I am also a personal trainer. Uh, I mostly work online these days. Uh, I have a couple of um, different gigs working with personal training one-on-one online as well as group, as well as doing some work uh, with ACL rehabilitation slash return to sport. So that's my lens. Awesome. So cool. And um, like four jobs as usual, Travis, you never have more than, you never have just one. Whenever I speak with you, there's always multiple projects going on simultaneously. You're actually at least three people. I might be. I mean. Who knows? Yeah. Who's to say? Yeah. The, uh, my logo, my last name is Pollen. My brand name is Fitness Pollinator. I I was once uh, in, a, in the same place or well, I saw a bee like uh, wearing a mascot costume. And I said, nobody's seen me and the bee in the same place at the same time. So the mystery <laughs> continues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, where is this going? <laughs> <laughs> this is a different podcast to what you expected, Alex. But um, mate, Alex Murray, who are you? Uh, so I am a, a podiatrist. Uh, I work predominantly with people with musculoskeletal pain and injuries of the lower limb. Uh, but outside the clinic, I do a number of things. I'm a director of podiatry systems and online education company. I am on social media posting constantly as the, the rehab podiatrist. Uh, I've uh, also teach some workshops on rehabilitation. Uh, I'm a communication and education partner with uh, the research group cause health based out of Norway, uh, who I absolutely love. Uh, they've always been fantastic. And uh, now I am uh, the podcast host of a podcast called Real Clinicians, Real Chats uh, with a physiotherapist, uh, Kit Wisdom, and we chat everything about how that's just the realities of 
dealing with uh, musculoskeletal conditions in the clinic. A lot of the focus is being on, you know, psych informed practice and, you know, just some of the, the tough realities of, of what we deal with. Some much needed conversations and do recommend listeners to check real clinicians, real chats. It's a good one. So gentlemen, we've got your general context and I'm keen to hear from two different professions um, and it, it's funny later on we might talk about our identities but for pain and injury rehab what kind of frameworks do you use um, within your context and feel free to jump in otherwise I'll call you out so then you go one at a time I think the the easiest one that comes to mind is the biopsychosocial approach right and that's I'm sure familiar to most listeners of this podcast, but uh, it's one that I, I've been really harping on with my undergraduate students and teaching a class called Health and Exercise Psychology. And these are third year undergraduate students, you know, 21 years old, have not, they're going, most of them are going to go into physical therapy doctorates um, in the coming year or two. Um, so they haven't been exposed to like the the biomedical uh, hard kind of biomedical education yet to then come back around to realize that it's more than the bio than it's more than the biomedical. So it's kind of funny. I'm telling them like you know biopsychosocial. This this course is the psychology piece. We also talk a little bit about the the social component, kind of like an ecological framework of health behaviors and trying to consider more than just the person. But anyway, I, I feel I'm, I'm like doing this backwards where I'm teaching them the right, the right way to think about it, at least from my perspective of a biopsychosocial lens. And then they're going to go to PT school and probably get mostly the biomedical um, where, you know, whereas people tend not to hear about this at all till they get to PT school, hear all about the biomedical, don't realize that there's a psychosocial side of it and then have to kind of work backwards from that. Uh, so it, it's kind of, I feel funny, like telling them this, like, hey, I'm telling you about there's this, you know, Venn diagram of three things. And these two things are really important. And in the next few years, you're only going to hear about this one. And they're like, uh, it's, you know, stupid Dr. Pollen, like, none of this stuff is relevant to me as a 21 year old. Um, but I, I hope that it like is planting a seed so that down the you know they'll forget about it for the three years in dpt school where they're just hearing about the biomedical stuff but then maybe eventually when they come back to it they'll have heard about it again so that's i the biopsychosocial model is of course the the one and then kind of coupled with that is the the socio-ecological model of the person and then their interpersonal framework and then their community organizations socio-economic all of that so those are those are the types of models that i flash up on my PowerPoints every day when we're talking about different health behaviors and different, you know, people in pain and all those sorts of things. And just trying to get people to consider that, that broader perspective. So essentially you're pre-bunking in a way you're like yeah. preparing them for where they might get misled later on. So though really, they haven't had the experience yet. I really like yeah. that pre-bunking. And I just, I, you know, I sit there and they stare at me with blank faces. I don't know if I'm making a difference, but I hope I am. I'm trying, <laughs> but it's hard because it's easier when people are coming in already having had the biomedical experience. And then you can tell them like, Hey, this psychosocial thing is really important. And then it's like the, the eye opening thing. 
But when they're getting exposed to what I perceive to be the the more holistic approach off the bat, they don't realize that there's any other way than 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 this holistic approach, which is hopefully good. But it's not as much of like a paradigm shift because there there was it was a blank slate. And I'm just telling them this and it's, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting because it's kind of like you're not going to get that interaction that lighting up as much when you're presenting that because I mean, in comparison to to having someone who's had trouble using the biomedical model and going, well, actually the outcomes are not as, not as promised. Um, so it can kind of almost be a bit disappointing. Yeah. They don't, they don't know any difference. They're just like, this makes sense. Why, like, why are you harping on this? Like, I get it. I'm like, no, no, this is really important. Like, make sure you remember this. It's like telling a uh, 18 year olds to prepare for retirement and, you know, financial literacy for, for that age. It's like, Oh, I haven't, I'll get there later. But, um, I, I think that's probably the, the best you can do at that time is prepare them for what they might be exposed to later on. So then they can at least have some kind of framework to filter some of the information with. It's, it's funny because in my mind, it goes, it goes younger where it's like, it's like a parent with a seven-year-old being like, now don't forget your jumper. It's going to be cold outside. Don't forget the jumper. And then like you come back and they, you know, they come back without the jumper, but with like dry needling and like a, a massage gun. Mate, Alex, what, what kind of uh, frameworks apart from massage guns and dry needling do you use? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in a, a funny different space. Not that I disagree with Travis, um, but I guess I, if I'm going to teach a framework to people or what I would use, I'd probably be using more of an acceptance and commitment therapy framework. Just like the basis of of how do we help people live a more meaningful life? How do we help them live by their values? And I find that as a point to teach teach from um, to work from just simply because of the the complete misunderstandings of the biopsychosocial model not that the that I feel like the model's wildly wrong I mean Travis is, is sort of one of the, the few people that has, is sort of like going back to like the OG I think it's like 1977 or 1979 angle model where it's like actually look it's like the onion and you know, there's so many different layers and and where do, where does something sit um which is the original model, but that's not what often gets talked about. That's not what often gets understood, at least in my experience in, in practice. Uh, definitely in podiatry, it's a case of, you know, it's very fragmented It's and it's looking at things through the lens of, of what's pathological. There's a biological pathology, there's a psychological pathology, and there's a, um, I guess I don't really acknowledge that there's a sociological pathology because they people don't realize that that's not a that can't be a thing but there's very much of a focus on well, we don't deal with the psych stuff we refer to a psychologist for that so this for this framework of acceptance commitment therapy is, is a as a basis of or well, how do we understand someone's values what makes them um feel like they're living a meaningful life and how do we as our treatment work to achieve that and there's there's a number of of significant benefits in my, in my mind just because of the the focus shifts to solely sort of the person at the focus shifts to them as an individual not them as as part of some sort of subgroup it focuses us on using our skills for that individual and, and problem solving 
And it also sort of helps us navigate things like, for example, if we're going to have to do treatments or or processes that will impact their goals. So we think about immobilization. We think about then having to get out of that boot and actually slowly re-engage an activity. Then they're not going to be able to go back and be and, and you know play golf or be in the garden or go for a run. So what are their values? What is going to make them feel like they're they're on a meaningful pathway back to 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 where they want to be, but also what makes them helps them enjoy their life, what brings richness. And we can start to focus on those things more than just the thing that they were doing beforehand. I love running. Running makes me feel sane. It makes me feel calm. It it, it helps helps me. I love being out in nature and I like going for a hike. You know, I really need to to, you know, tend to the garden. And it's like, so what what is the values underpinning that? What's the what's the things that making a life rich? like the key sort of, you know, component and how do we keep you being able to do that despite, you know, these, these barriers that we have for a short period of time. And I find that a much better way to communicate it uh, without as much ambiguity. I'm, I'm just not, I guess I'm not as lucky to have uh, blank slates like, uh, like Travis, no, not to, not, not to contradict. It's more of like an expansion and a, and uh, when we talk about how we, how we teach things in, in different contexts to different people, that's, that's my experience. And I, and I guess is my own personal anchoring, something that, that helps me focus less on the, on, on pathology and switching to that mindset and more on the person. That's Could you awesome. give an example of like kind of a, a case maybe where you've person's coming in with, this complaint and how you might reframe or what questions you might ask in terms of of values and asking uh, it's it's a lot of it's probably reflection mm-hmm. rather than uh asking like real detailed questions what do you value and you you're listening to this story and they're pulling out a a thread and i guess the sort of the more classic sort of one is is someone coming in and they just i need to get back on i need to get back walking i need to back get back moving and it just turns out the rest of their family is really active and for like three four five months they've just been pushing through this pain and you know they just got to a point we said well you know you've you know we've tried everything we've we've worked through this process um of trying to settle it down with lots of different conservative means. And we're going, well, you know, we've got a scan now and it shows something that I think we need to immobilize. You know, we're going to need to stop you from from moving for a period of time and this is going to slow you down. And that was quite, quite um, devastating because the two things that were sort of coming behind that was that one, she wasn't going to be able to, you know, engage with her family as much being very active. She was you know, very worried about sort of being left behind. Everyone's quite, quite crazy. And they, they go on trips and, um, you know, they're always out biking or hiking or doing something. Um, but also the fact that she was having trouble explaining to her family what was going on because she didn't have, like we had up to that point, she was just sort of in pain and everyone was sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, but you keep, you kept going. So the two things that happened were one, obviously having a boot told her family that, Hey, something is up which was good. Um, but a lot of it sort of came down to not wanting to um, be be left behind, feel like she's a bird, but also, you know, lose that interaction with her family. So we just brought the, brought the family and explained what was going on, explained what she could do, 
what what we were going to try and calm down and the process to getting back. And we just went through, okay, so what, how are we going to keep you moving? How are we going to keep you active? How do we keep you involved? And we just went through and it's the same really with sports teams, you know, someone's, someone's got an injury and we go, okay, you know, get the coach, get the team. This is what they can do. This is what they can't do. Okay. So how, how do, how are they still involved? And, you know, so when I was doing, you know, um, some work with the rugby team, that's what would happen. It was, okay, you're collecting the balls. You're going to be involved in this meeting. You might have to do your rehab runs over here. But when we're doing this, you know, you can still throw the ball in. You can still um, do these these tasks. So you're going to move in and out with the team. And that that was really the the, the process that we, that we that we took. And, yeah, rather than just focusing on the pathology, it was just a case of, well, what are we doing wider? And we're involving that that psychological and, and really what was more probably that socio sociological in, in those cases sides of it, how do we keep you integrated with society and, and with the people that you, you love spending time with, whether it be, you know, the family or the rugby team. It reminds me of the, of something that I learned from my exercise psychology textbook, <laughs> uh, self-determination theory, just the idea that you want to continue to build Self, uh, social connection with people as well as confidence and autonomy. So like you mentioned, well, when you take the, when you put the boot on the person, they've, they've lost the confidence or self-efficacy to be able to go on and do the hikes and be active with the family. You've also then taken away the social connection uh, because they can't do that activity with them. So then, well, how do we find ways to continue to maintain some level of confidence as with the boot and then, you know, find ways to connect with the family in replacement of the things that you can't do for that temporary amount of time. It sort of helps us become, use our skills and knowledge to become that bridge in, in, in my mind, because in a traditional model, um, even in a biopsychosocial model, it, it, it doesn't essentially give us that in my mind, that that push to be like, okay, you've got these skills, you've got this knowledge, how do we solve this problem? It's a case of no, I've provided my treatment, I've talked to them, I've considered the psychology, and it's like, well, no, 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 you're the you're the person now that will take up that mantle that can do those little extra things. It's um, it's interesting hearing this discussion where um, what I tend to come across is more what treatments do you do, or like what do you do to someone with pain, and it, it just the assumption within that is still promoting that kind of passive approach where even if it can be absolutely exercise, you can dictate someone's exercise rehab without considering their autonomy and their needs, or you can have a, a kind of fixer approach towards pain education and just, you know, dictate didactically what someone should be believing. So throughout this so far, I haven't heard anyone really talk about, any particular treatments modality. So what do you identify with? Don't you like do orthotics, Alex? And don't you like prescribe strength training or something like for everyone at all times? Everyone that comes in gets an orthotic. Travis, come on. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you identify with? If I was to ask that open-ended question. Oh, I can go first. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, I have a traditional podiatry skill set. I do foot orthotics. I do footwear. Um, I do probably a lot more than the average podiatrist, a lot more strength exercise rehab. So I'm also a a qualified strength and conditioning coach or certified, whichever the word is. Um, 
and then yeah we've got mobilization we've got things that we can you know other sort of things we can put in people's shoes rather than just you know really expensive expensive orthotic um i have used shockwave in the past not enough that i i get 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 a machine um i don't i don't really i've never really found i guess in in my practice and, and who traditionally comes to see a podiatrist that you know i need things like dry needling and massage and not saying that they don't i've never had patients uh, i've never referred someone off for them or i've had patients that uh all my patients don't use them, but it's not a, not a skill set that that I have, and you know I recognise that also just comes with the title that I have and the the place that I work in as to as to why those aren't aren't things I do often or at all. When you when you say you're prescribing exercises, are they mostly localised to, uh, well, you know the the foot in particular, or the lower limb, or the the entire lower extremity, or core? quote unquote. Yeah. Depends. So, so that's, that's the beauty of, of being <laughs> qualified strength and conditioning coaches that, that I can, you know, I can give them shoulder presses if I want them, want to, um, not that I do, uh, but it's, it's everything. It's what the person needs. So generally, you know, we, we start quite maybe potentially small and localized if it's, you know, they're coming out of a boot or, you know, they're, they're quite deconditioned and, you know, then it will move right up to what's their goal and activity. What are they trying to get back to? How are we preparing them for that? So it's not just the injury area. It's, you know, a lot of people end up doing knee-based exercise, hip-based exercise, core-based exercises to start to prepare them. You know, I'll have some running gait drills. Um, you know, so a lot of the rehab is going to be focused on, well, what do they need as the next step? So a lot of people are coming in and they're there. We do run uh, technical running drills and uh, have a bunch of other stuff to do. So when they go out, they're, they're ready and... Yeah, it's it's great because I, I find when people come in, they expect, okay, we're just going to do these boring exercises, and they're they're, they're potentially not going to relate. And when I show them, and I say, well, we're going to do this drill, and this is how it, this is how we're like, I literally can show them the part of running where it relates, and they go, oh wow, and then you know they come back and go, you know, I'm actually feeling faster. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. I, I, am, we should I be imagine doing. that that is atypical of members of your profession. And I don't know many podiatrists, but I can only speak to the, the I'm, I'm, I know more physical therapists, physiotherapists, and it's atypical of them to, to be well-versed in strength and conditioning, to then be able to treat the person in such a way that's going to prepare them more so than those localized exercises, but take them from a mobilization all the way up to return to high level function. It just... In, like I said, in the physiotherapy world, I see that as kind of a, a unicorn clinician. And I, I'm wondering if that's, if you also would identify, maybe you wouldn't self-identify as a unicorn clinician, but from what your experience of your, you know, other people. Yeah. I wouldn't say unicorn. I'd, I'd say sort of like just the weird unit that that does all these things. Um, yeah, no, it is, it is a, it is a skill set that is not was a skill set that I, I try and teach others. So hopefully, hopefully it's not. If I if I am still that 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 unicorn as you see it, then that's that's probably a personal failing. Uh, then it, more than anything, but uh, you know it is an atypical skill set from a university curriculum perspective where we get very little um, exercise. Um, yeah, yeah. Knowledge. Uh, the other thing is is that we, when you're dealing with podiatrists in the US, you're dealing with a very different field that's much more aligned with foot and ankle orthopedic surgery, especially nowadays, than 
than anything else. So if you said you had, you knew a podiatrist um, there that in the US that did strength and conditioning and run tech and all that sort of stuff, then that's like a golden unicorn. Yeah. Well, that's, how are they paying their student loans? Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear that that's not really a part of your classic podiatry, podiatry training, but you kind of picked that up on the side and have been able to integrate that into your clinical practice. And then of course had good results with that to the point where you're wanting to spread that message, right? Well, it's, it's, it's just the fact that when most people come through the door, they're not having a multidisciplinary team. And, you know, if you've got a skill set that really needs to work within that team. So I know people that are really successful. I had a chat the other day with someone who in Sydney, who has a clinic where he's like, I've got a whole team around me. Everyone comes in expecting to have this whole team approach and everyone gets bounced around. He's like, and so I'm the foot footwear, foot orthotic brace dude. I'm like, that's great. Cause he also, right, goes, yeah. he's also goes, here's your brace. Here's how it's going to work or go away. You need to do this first. Then you're going to come back for this. Everyone loves it. And it's like, great, but we're not always in that position. And most of the time people come in and we need to be sort of doing a little bit of everything. There's always limits to my skill set, and I absolutely refer off so much to when they reach a point and I go, no, no, now, now we're too into the performance context or we're too far down the track, or you've got these other things you need to go somewhere else. And some people are annoyed to leave. They're like, stop. Like, like this is nice. But I'm like, you absolutely need to need to get away from me if, if you want to get the most for your money. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a tricky thing, you know, having multiple skills, which is great because like you said, it, it's great if you can go into one hub and then you have all of these amazing practitioners who work can work together, but stay within a narrow focus or you're one person who has multiple skill sets also acknowledging, well, here's where the limit, you know, my skill set ends and I can refer you to somebody, somebody who would be really good to do whatever it is that you exactly need. Mm. It's interesting how the context as well shapes the treatments and the approaches that we have. And Travis, I, I recall we discussed some of our own like mobility backgrounds back in the day. And, and you also have some great work about the FMS on physio network and done lots of podcasts on that. So I'm, That's where so I I'm, I'm sure you're a corrective exercise specialist still. Um, otherwise I'll just have to kick you out of this. You know, what's funny podcast. is that I, I actually, so I was very exposed to that framework from the beginning of my entry into this profession, but I actually somehow managed never to get any of the continuing education certifications, um, which is, I, I got some backlash on that. He's like, well, you haven't attended the course. And so I thought, well, maybe I should just can't attend the course so I could say I've attended the courses, but uh, I ended up not. And now the, the fad has passed, but yeah, the, the, that, that whole paradigm is something that I was very engrossed in for a long time. And it, it, it continues to shape a little bit of the way I see things, but hopefully I've, and I think maybe we'll get into this, but tried to take the good and reject the bad. It's a, that flexibility within that role of who you are. I think that allows you that. And um, also it requires some sense of humility to not be so, attached and fused to like no i am a movement specialist insert three-letter acronym because like I, I had that kind of sunk cost myself when i was going through that so what 
what would you say has replaced that kind of identity for yeah. you nowadays? Well, I think I think I I managed to get really lucky. I think well, at first, very deep into that uh, particular world, uh, exposure to lots of different people who were doing that same three letter acronym. And somehow at some point I realized I, I got exposed to another corner of the internet, um, where by extension, I met you two. Uh, and I, I realized that there was this whole other world out there. So I, I ended my subscription to the podcasts that I was listening to. And I started, I realized, Hey, I've been really exposed. I've had a lot of mentors. I I've, I've been listening to a lot of con ed, reading a lot of books in this one area. I need to, this is good. And it's gotten me to a good starting point, but I need to totally get away from that and expose myself to other people who are saying the exact opposite thing. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what, what it was in me that sparked that. I think it was like the, maybe I had an, oh shoot moment where somebody called me out for something and I heard the, I didn't backfire and ignore i i explored and i realized that there was this whole other side of things where i needed to try to expose myself to as many different viewpoints as i could uh and then i got turned on to some other mentors who i thought were more evidence-based which is something that i really i value as as a, a person who has gone through master's now and a PhD. That's kind of, you know, I, I want to be, I, I, I appreciate people who have a lot, well, evidence-based practice. That's, that's a big entity into itself. I appreciate people who are ap applying evidence-based practice from very much from a research standpoint, marrying it with their clinical or hands-on experience, not just saying, well, we don't, we don't trust that research. We don't believe that research. We're ahead of the research. And that was kind of the people who I had been exposed to at first and they, those people, you know, they, they do okay work. They get results with their people, but it would be better if we could also be scientific too. So that was the, maybe the, that was kind of how I sometimes would identify, all right, this person seems to be well-versed in the literature and have good clinical experience, a hands-on experience. I want to pay attention to what they're saying and the people who are kind of poo-pooing the research like I'm not I'm going to not pay as much attention to them. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful to, uh, you're, you're very kind with the word poo-poo. We would say like, you know, shit, but feel free to swear anytime. Um, the, the kind of, we're not part of a, I guess, a cult of, and you're not as far as I know could be, but you're not in a cult of evidence-based for life where we are discarding all experience at all costs. And that's kind of the straw man that is, uh, very common when it comes to that, that more science-based approach. Yeah, I well, I, you, there are some of those people out there too, and that pissed me off just as much. It's like they're dumping sixteen citations here, but uh, I feel like that's that's even they've gone too far to that extreme. Yeah. So if if we were to maybe go to the question of of filters, because I feel like this is a good segue, and Alex, I'm keen to hear your journey and, and how your filter has developed. What what kind of filters do you, do you use now to determine kind of the reliability of sources and um, 
whether or not some claims are to be, you know, accurate or um, I don't want to say honest, but I guess are less wrong than other narratives out there. When we're talking about competing narratives, I'm keen to hear what filters you both use. I'm not sure I'm going to answer the question directly. Go for it. So I think if I was going to say the biggest sort of deficit I see when we're looking at evidence-based medicine is exactly what sort of Travis was talking about, where it's like the, the, the citation dump, the, you know, the, there's almost this belief in this institution that if it's in a published peer reviewed journal and it's gone through all of these processes and it's, it's this attachment to what currently is the, the evidence-based frameworks and, and that's what's been held up when I feel like if we go back to what is science as a, as a, as a thing and why is science so, so powerful and helpful. And it's, it's the fact that it's this, this constant rigorous peer review challenge and peer review does not end at the end of peer review. You, you know, I, I, as someone, Travis obviously has a lot more experience in this, but as, as someone who's published one article, uh, I know you have two peer reviewers and it's very funny because I've also had that article go to a number of different sources and have two different peer reviewers with two very different opinions. And, you know, you can just shop that thing until you find the peer reviewers that agree with you. And I've so done it. <laughs> you're just like, I believe in this. I must get this. But the thing is, is that peer review does not end at, at the official peer review. It, it ends when it, it never ends. It should never end. And it should be people questioning and thinking and so when I think about the filters and the framework that I have, what I'm constantly doing is I'm just constantly trying to understand what exactly that research can tell us, not what the conclusion says, not what the discussion says, but just looking at the methodology and saying, so what did they do? Okay, we got a bunch of people into a room, we gave them a orthotic, and what do you know, a whole bunch of them got better. Okay, but who? Who is that person? Oh, it just turns out that for years, when we're looking at patellofemoral pain research, we only had the only conclusion criteria was people with flat feet, pronated feet, quote unquote. And so the only answer we got was, does it help pronated feet? Well, actually, it sort of does. It sort of does, sort of helps for some and sort of doesn't help for others. And so in terms of filters, I guess I don't really have a filter per se. I just have a curiosity that goes, well, what exactly did they do for who did they do it to? So another great example is in plantar fascial sort of pain research, plantar heel pain research, most of the inclusion criteria, three months with pain or five, six weeks with pain, hasn't seen another practitioner, hasn't got another treatment. I have people that come in with acute heel pain, really acute heel pain that's going to come in and they're like, this has been going on for a week and I can't keep going. When are they going to get into a study? They're never, they're never going to turn up in a study because no one is going to put up with that level of pain for that period of time, or at least in the way that we're currently doing it. So having this curiosity and this thinking and trying to understand what they're, what they're doing, and there is real barriers to that in terms of understanding some of the language. But when, once we get through that, that's, that's my approach. And I sort of, when I look at it and I sort of go, oh, it's another study just looking at flat feet and orthotics. I go, that's not helpful because we've got a whole bunch of other research that I've read that shows orthotics could help people that don't have flat feet. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that will 
that it's actually a foot that that might expand a bit more, have a have a bit more midfoot um, expansion. So maybe it's a more flexible foot, not exactly a flat foot, or there's all these other sort of components. And a lot of it has to do also with other personal characteristics, if we're going to read some of the research. So I, when I see research that kind of goes down one path that we've been before, and we've gotten similar results. That's where I guess the filter might come in, but the filter is, is informed by all the other reading and that curiosity and trying to figure out where it all fits together. And a lot of that has, you know, the, the shout out, a lot of that has been, you know, well, that process has been helped by my work and learning more about cause health because they're talking about how things work together, uh, a dispositionalism framework where it's just, okay, well, if you have all of these factors, these might predispose you to having this outcome when you have this present, you know, you just because you have firewood doesn't mean you have fire. There's other things that have to happen, but you don't have fire without the, the firewood and it's like so when do those things come together and that's that sort of approach that i take it becomes like the kind of questions that we ask and the the lens the kind of complex systems lens we we see where it's not so much you know this is good or this is bad it's like more contextual and it's uh your awareness is based off the humans that you want to help and they are very complex and they're, they're not just data points on, on any research study. So it's that, that filter is almost like a translate. You're translating the, the research or the evidence base to that person's context and their unique circumstances and their needs at that mm. particular point in time. Well, I, had, I had someone come in and say, well, actually they've got all this Achilles pain and they're like, Oh, Massage and, and, and dry needling has actually really worked for me in the past. Is that something that I can get done on this? And I was like, well, incidentally, there is a study that shows, yeah, it can produce good outcomes. It just takes more. So I said, yes, absolutely. It's worked for you. Like we can, we can work with that. And that's actually in the evidence. It's just the fact that, you know, they were finding on average, it takes 10 sessions of massage versus one session of exercise. But if it's worked before and we can say, well, look, that's what they really want to do. And we can work in the exercise component and we can find that pathway forward. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I really like that idea of, well, what, what's worked for you in the past or what, what are you expecting? And then I can tell you what's worked for me in seeing similar people. Uh, and we can try to find the the right medium. If they come to you saying a bunch of hocus pocus, then that's a little bit tougher of a conversation to have to say, well, you know, in my experience or from my reading on the research, those really, those treatments don't seem to get the best outcomes. Would you be open to exercise? And then maybe they are, maybe they're not. If they're not, then maybe they're not a good fit to, to work together. Um, but hopefully you can turn them on to that, right? I think that's such a such an important important point that you hit on is is, you, is who you are where you practice the populations you generally work with who you, what you look like as a person all of these things will attract different people to you and if we don't take that into consideration i think that's a huge there's a huge point um space for anecdotes and and but the way that we use anecdotes is well this is the right answer not in my patient population and the people that I see when I look like this, when I have this background, when I have this, this marketing, 
this is what's worked for me. And when we understand that and we sort of go, oh, I can understand why this is working because Travis sees all these, you know, elite athletes who've done their ACL where I see, you know, a lot of little old ladies who are trying to, you know, work in the garden. How can we, but what can we take from, from Travis to that, that understands, well, actually we can, we know that, you know, this exercise or the, you know, this type of strength we need to build first. If, if they've got an injury, this type of injury, we want to get them back. I think that's the the tricky part when you're a person consuming things on the internet and people are people with a lot of followers are coming and saying, this is what works. And it's like, this is what works. And I have to remember, this is what works for them with their clients who are hearing from those people that this is what works. You know, if I try to use it and I I don't really believe in it and my population's a little different and I'm explaining it a little bit differently, then I can't expect to necessarily get the same results. We're kind of, of course, it matters what the research has shown too, um, but it's it's all of those things. We're more, we should be more like implementation scientists. Or really, at a, at a case, builders. You know, if you we all know, you know, if you're going to build the same exact house on the exact same thing, it's like, well, there, there's going to be problems. What's the ground is different. The the needs are different. If we're thinking constantly about how we have what inf- what, what what we can, what knowledge that we have and we've gained, and we can put in different places and and less on right wrong. That's why I like the my my sort of slightly different framework. It gives you that focus. That dispositional approach and highly recommend that course health series that you're a part of it's got some great podcast series in there as well everything's free everything is free as part of that that's you're not shilling at all no 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 sign us up sign a free book you can download their entire book for free it's a it's a bit of a read and i highly recommend actually if you're going to read the book listen to actually dr oliver thompson's podcast To, to, to immediately take the spotlight off myself, he does like a, a chapter by chapter. But yes, we do have the introduction course that sort of goes through it basically and we have some good chats about it. And I feel like for for the listeners who may not have come across uh, these terms and of dispositionalism and complex systems theory, if Alex, you could give a very brief uh, outline because I feel like that answers the filter if we have that lens and we can see how all these factors can interact and it's not just a unilateral kind of or like singular cause and effect line. There's all can, can these I other. Actually, can I actually throw to Travis? Because I think Travis, in terms of it as an explanation, um, actually did a, did a better one of, of complex systems or dynamic systems theory than me. Oh, yeah. Well, so this is uh, my, my research on injury prevention. I've looked at a lot of these models for how injuries happen. And the, like you said, Daniel, the, the simplest model, it's like, well, the injury or the pain is happening because of this. And it's like, well, we don't, we already know that it's more complicated than that. It's happening because of many things, but it's not just like, uh, you know, linear, uh, these things cause this. It's really like, well, all of these causes, or I kind of use the word like contributing factors. Uh, are all interacting together and influencing each other. And then that's like, uh, that can be within the person or it can be things outside of the person uh, environmentally or or interpersonally or societally. And then that kind of puts the person into the situation 
where they could have pain or have the injury and then the injury may or may not happen. Um, and if it does happen or if they do have pain, then that goes back and re-influences the person and all of those factors again. So the, the, the complex systems or dynamical systems or whatever you want to call it, um, they call it like this web of determinants where all of these factors are constantly changing like day to day, hour by hour. And each of these things are influencing the the risk of injury, the, the risk of pain, the person getting better in the rehab process. And so it's, it's easy to think like, well, they got injured because they like their, their knee went whoopsie at that time. And it's like, well, you got to think way before that, uh, all of the, the factors that were, uh, they say like proximal and distal, like distal to the outcome and, and think about all of those things inter inter interacting and interfering with each other. And it's just very complicated and it's even, it's hard to like the, the mathematics of that from a research design standpoint are like way out, way over my head. Um, but it's a, an interesting thing to think about just from the standpoint of this is way more complicated than your knee went into valgus and that's why you tore your ACL or whatever the mechanism of ACL is because they don't even think that's it anymore. Well, it's it's interesting because when you when I was looking at a web of determinants, it was saying, you know, is a person fatigued? What's the, right. what's the training load been? What, what is there an unexpected environmental, you know, occurrence? Like something happens that's different, and it's like, how did that body adapt or fail to adapt to that? And that's the situation. That's the funny thing about these studies that measure risk factors, right? So I measure your hamstring strength, and this is actually that's a pretty good potentially risk factor for hamstring strain injury, but I measured it at the beginning of the season. And then you suffer a hamstring strain a few months later. Well, one, we don't know what your hamstring strength was like that day. We don't know what it was like in that moment because you were fatigued and we don't know necessarily what the, the description of the incident was where especially, well, those are usually non-contact injuries, but what, it, like the context of the moment that it happened, like, so you just measuring somebody several months before and saying this is a risk factor, it tells you so little about what the and the, the person's fat sleep, fatigue, uh, nutritional status, uh, workload was that week, that month. It's like this is really complicated and it's hard to measure all those things. But I'm guessing it would be very it's very helpful in one respect, though, if someone has you pick them up at the start of the season and they have really weak hamstrings. You kind of go, great. Now we have something we can address. But if it's you have encouraging. Hmm. It's encouraging from that way because you think, well, this is an important thing to consider. But then you think, well, we just have to get them strong. And that's that like when you mentioned the Alex, like people taking a conclusion from a study and running with it, like you see that all the time, especially with the, the idea like, well, strength, you know, you can't go wrong with getting strong. And the most important thing we can do is get strong. And yeah, that's important. But also the research that we have on that isn't as strong as people think it is. It They they see a systematic review meta-analysis from a good journal and they want to go with it, but then nobody bothers to read the study or read the studies that were included in the study and see like, oh, 
this was six studies on soccer players with hamstring strains and like one other study. And now we're saying, well, all we just, we just have to load it and we just have to get strong. So, so you got to take it more than just, well, let me look at the abstract, read the conclusion at the surface level. Like you said, you got to look and see what were those methods? Who were the people in the study? Who am I <laughs> to, to apply that intervention? Am I the same as the people in the study applying that intervention? And then let alone just reading somebody else's interpretation of the study. But it's tough because not everybody has that skill set to go through that. You can't even get access to some of the papers behind the paywalls necessarily. And then the time and the the prowess to be able to take the study apart bit by bit. Hmm. It's it would to to contrast that with it like a dispositionalism perspective, we we could, you know, look at having low strength being a you know, predisposing factor or a low amount of strength. But then we can also look at all the other factors. How does, how does that someone, that means that down the track, they won't have any strength to call on. But then you can also look at the other sort of factors like poor sleep can be disposing to them being fatigued, which can dispose them to being, having a poor outcome on the day where they go to utilize that strength and they can't. So there's all these sort of predisposing factors. And yeah, I guess you know, through an evidence-based medicine lens, we might, accidentally focus really hard on the strength because it's what we have the research for and we're forgetting about the implementation. Well, yeah, actually, and we're, we're good at strength. Well, some of us. <laughs> but then we um, find all this other research showing like, well, how does strength be affected on the day? So it's not in ACL injuries, but it might just be in hamstrings in general. And then all of a sudden, if we think about implementation, we can start to think about, well, actually on the day, we know these things could be affecting their strength on the day. And why don't we bring that in? It's got no no um, evidence in in using it in ACLs, but it's something that we can look at and go, well, that that's how we can bring that in because it makes sense. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that I, I'm, I, when I did a really deep dive into this, I thought, you know what, the most important thing isn't just measuring at the beginning of the season, but it's frequent measurements, you know, especially at the, the elite athlete level, like what can we measure on almost a daily basis? And, and the easiest thing is just a self-reported, Hey, how'd you sleep? How's your stress? uh how you feeling today soreness whatever um but if you can do a quick and dirty measurement of vertical jump or hamstring strength or grip strength or just a hey how you doing today at the very least you're you're going to get some information about their readiness if you want to call it that um but that's not that's that's hard to study it's rarely studied uh it seems to be that that would be helpful but it's hard to do those types of studies no one wants to do a study where it's just like, we just asked a bunch of athletes, hey, how you going? And they said, good. And then we found actually that was a good predictor. No one wants to be the, hey, how you going study man or woman. I'll, 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 I'll do it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's easier than going into the gym every day and getting their vertical jumps. True. And so, so what I'm hearing, like if you were to go through that, uh, it's, I think we're, generally taught unless we have someone like travis as a professor or lecturer or tutor it'd be freaking awesome but we're generally taught like a cause and effect kind of approach where there is a problem and there's a solution to it or there's one injury and there's a like a major risk factor and we see that risk factor in isolation and lots of randomized control trials tend to uh have that context where it's just trying to measure that particular variable in isolation so we can find out you know level of causality we'll say and we we imagine it to be a one-way direction where the weaker you are the increased risk of injury there is and that 
takes away from that context. What we're saying instead is that there's much more to it when applied to time. Like at what time did we measure that strength? What if they were really strong initially at the start of the season and they got weaker on the day of the injury? How would we know? And then it's also the other way. So it's not just unidirectional. It can be bidirectional. If they've had a history of ACL injuries in the past, how is that going to affect their strength? And how is that going to affect their future risk of injury? And that's why it's... it's And their psychology. Yes. And again, we're, we're just, we're, right now, we're just talking about muscle and like tissues. There's also a human attached to that, those tissues. And there's other behaviors around them and there's other contextual factors. So I think um, it's, it's important to go through some form of questioning where we include these contextual questions of like, how would this information change in this particular context? I think that's a helpful take home for, for listeners. Is there anything I'm missing there would, that would be? I would add, all I kept thinking about is, is I used to play volleyball and there's one member of a volleyball team called the Libro, who's just this sh- shorter person who sits at the back. And all I keep thinking of is, you know, with, with Travis saying vertical jump, vertical jump, you measure that dude's vertical jump and it's going to be nothing because do you know what he doesn't do? Jump. At the back, is in the entire job of that position is to be as low to the floor as possible and catch all of the people that get, get spikes because everyone else is tall. Everyone else is going to jump. You measure that vertical jump, you're going to get a very interesting understanding, but that's something that can be forgotten that you've got this one player on the team that doesn't jump, that doesn't do that, but they're going to be in highly flexed positions for long periods of time. So what's important to that? player so all of a sudden you you can change the context completely by just saying this person actually plays a different position so it just just to add to your you know your your really good summary of if you just add the more context you add you know the the complete difference it can, it can make to to all of those assumptions and that's that's a tricky thing too from the research because we do research on whatever sport and it's like well the demands of the midfielders versus the defense versus the forwards, like they're so different and we're just lumping all these people together. It's it, it, this is uh, interesting. I'm, I'm resonating with this message back in the day when I used to come across certain say risk factors for pain, like low sleep. And then I would just apply that as an intervention of like, just get more sleep and you'll be fine but there's, it's missing out the entire context. And it's still within that paradigm that even though it was in my understanding, biopsychosocial, cause I'm addressing, you know, the psychosocial stuff as well as their, their strength and conditioning, it's still uh, one direction. It's still linear cause and effect. It's, it's not understanding the wider picture and, and it's not zooming out on that person within their context and what the reasons for them not getting enough sleep in the first place. What if, what if they're not sleeping because they're worried about their injury and you just managed the injury and then they got better sleep? Well, they're not sleeping because of pain mm. as well. Mm. It's so easy to want that quick solution. Or that, they're yeah. not sleeping because they woke up early to do an hour of exercise because their PT <laughs> told them they had to do these 20 exercises every day. So true. It's, it's a, 
my um my inner child is shamed right now for doing that back in the day but no absolutely it's 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 needed we, we need to have these conversations and i think um this is one of the ways if we go back to how can we inoculate newer clinicians that are exposed to differing opinions and um it's so easy to market the quick and simple solutions on on socials what would you say gentlemen if we were to pre-bunk inoculate um and have some of these conversations i think that's probably one of the my answers would be having these contextual complex conversations about the nuances of statements and and claims and more longer form content such as podcasts courses would be the a much easier solution than one infographic or a meme. So get off social media and get on the knowledge exchange podcast. That's it. You're not going to give a shout and out. And we're going to end it right the there. And uh, thank you. Or-, <laughs> or, or my podcast or Alex's podcast. Absolutely. There's Let's so many, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't plug your own. There's, there's so many options out there. I think it's, it's just, um, um, it's, it's so much easier to just go for that the person, as you mentioned, Travis, with the most followers or the one with the authority bias or the corrective, you know, exercise specialist where we, you know, all our colleagues are taking their course and everyone around us is doing that treatment modality. So we need to fit in to our own context. Those are, yeah. And those are, those are skills, right? You can, you can take those courses and you can hear those out and you can incorporate some of those things, but trying not to get too far down that rabbit hole, especially with the, those people who are claiming to have all of the answers. Like, I feel like that's the, so that those are the people who you want to run away from the most. I mean, l- listen to them for a minute, but I, like, I feel like I know nothing and I value the people who uh, are at acknowledge the limitations of their knowledge or just are, are, are more humble and less, uh, you know, follow me, listen to me because I know, I know better than everybody else that those are the people who I think we need to avoid. If, if I was going to think of something that, well, I guess learning from my, my journey into this would be, I mean, my, how I got interested in all of this was, and learning more and doing more is just constantly questioning things. I will constantly question. I will constantly be like, why, how this doesn't make any sense. And I get brick walled, especially at university. And I think if we are really thinking about how we're going to create clinicians that are going to be asking these questions and thinking in these ways, we need to make people or, or encourage people to be tenacious with questioning. And we need to be comfortable with people questioning us questioning our our motives, thinking about things in really critical ways and not always having the answer and being able to go, that's, that is a really good question. How can we think about this? And it's when we have that, that constant, not having this institutional, this right, it's like, actually, yeah, you know, if we, if we look at this question on this exam that you had, there are some assumptions there. What are those assumptions? And how could we, we focus on this being the right, more the more correct answer in this case? But wh- how would that answer change if I told you this? And I think there's, if, if I go one level deeper, I think, you know, one of the things that really holds us back is that 
when we have these institutions and this idea or we, we build things up and this, these, these, you know, people or, you know, uh, more insidious sort of things like a sociological um, enterprise of, of what is evidence-based medicine is there's also a really big issue of a sense of belonging that if you're going to question things, you are going to be the person that's on the outs and that a lot of the ways that people or like these sort of narratives and things keep going is because you have very big personalities. You know, it can be on social media, it can be in associations, it can be in institutions themselves, the academic institutions. And you have people. So when they, when one person stands up, they stomp it out. Another person stands up and they stomp down. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. And what we're missing <laughs> is the fact that, that that challenging someone is such a inherently socially dangerous activity. And that leads to, the sort of second thing. So if we're encouraging people to question, encouraging people to challenge, there also needs to be that sense of, well, we need to be able to encourage them to create networks of people. We need to encourage them to have places, uh, whether they make it themselves or we start making it for them to come and to have these discussions, to connect with other people, to have a place where they feel like they can belong so when they go and they challenge, they have something to come back to. It's not a threatening environment to be challenging all of these people out there and, and be left on an island on, on, on their own. And, and that's very isolating. And I, I, find, I find it hard to say to people, oh, you, know, you need to be challenging more if they're going to be in that position where they don't have that support. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to tell someone, you know, how, how to approach the research, you know, I have a very nihilistic sort of view where it's a case of, well, you know, if we look at the research, the research has been wrong so many times uh, just because we always overreach. We always think things too deeply. It's always a case of, you know, when, it, when research comes up with a really big, bold answer and we go, this is a solution, it's most likely wrong. It doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but if we come from that perspective, that constant challenge, that's really helpful. But yet, yeah, you can't you can't do that alone, and you can't do that um, easily when you don't have that network. Yeah, we need that safe place to, uh, like that community to bounce ideas and uh, to also like validate ourselves as you know clinicians as humans so we're not just outed if we do challenge or question i think um on top of that having a, a culture where we're where we can normalize the questioning as well and, and lead by example and um, show maybe instances where we've ourselves have been questioned and how we felt and how we responded and we reacted and if we can we can role model more healthy helpful ways of responding to questions then other people can also feel more safe to question themselves. When we think about the people that, that put out BS, that, that, that really put out misinformation, they're doing exactly the same thing as what the institutions are doing. And this is the right answer. I'm the person that you should follow because I'm the person at the university. It doesn't work. And then they go, okay, well, where else do I go? I go to this other person who's saying the exact same thing because I'm against the university. And they go, great. So if we want to change the game, we have to, we have to adapt the way. And because the, the people that are putting out BS are just doing the exact same process, just acting as an opposite. So easy to go into those camps of dichotomy, yeah. the, the good versus the bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so destroy the dichotomy. Like it.
just destroy the system entirely. Gents, like, is there, don't burn anything. Is there uh, any, for the listeners, any other tips, Take one take home for the listeners that are exposed to differing perspectives and just starting to understand a little bit more about critical thinking and hopefully have been inspired with some examples from this podcast. But one, one takeaway and maybe reflecting on when you were uh, first exposed to a more a, a evidence-based perspective back in the day and how you responded and what you would have liked a little more of. What, what, what's one piece of advice you'd offer? I would say that like to embrace that uncertainty, that's kind of a, a buzzword these days. But I remember when I was first doing my PhD, uh, I, I had a classmate. He won't listen to this, so it's okay. Um, he, uh, he was very frustrated with reading research and, and getting, you know, two papers or two experts saying completely different things. He just wanted to know what the answer was. And uh, I think as from what I hear from students doing, you know, physical therapy degrees, physiotherapy, uh, they just want to know what the answer is. And the what we've been talking about is there is no answer uh, or we don't know the answer yet. And you're going, you can always find two people, two trusted or people who seem to be trustworthy, uh, quote unquote experts who say the complete opposite things. And if that, like you have to, you have to love that. I, 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 I fell in love with that. I just find that so fun um, because it's like, well, how can both of these things be true? And then you puzzle through that and then you dig deeper and then maybe you go, you lean towards one side or you lean to the other, or ultimately you throw your hands up in the air and say, well, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> um, but that, that embracing that process as opposed to be like going, feeling frustrated and just wanting that, that answer, just recognizing that there is no answer or there's, there is no simple answer for sure. There's, there's always going to be people who disagree and you have to get comfortable with that. I would say read widely, trust your gut. That's something that I found when you find something and you go, that's interesting or I don't think that fits. Trust your gut. Someone will always tell you why you're wrong. But like consistently I found when I had a gut feel for something and then, you know, you start talking more widely to people like actually yeah that is a good point and and think about context because there is never a right answer but there is something that's going to be helpful for someone in a specific context and your role is is to work as uh, if you're going to put a hat on any sort of hat it's 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 an implementation scientist hat not a not a um like theoretical or i don't know what else you would call it trying to look for the answer it's what's going to work for this person Read widely, trust your gut, figure out what works for what's going to work for that person and make sense. Don't always try and think, figure out what's going to be the absolute golden ticket for that person. It's so, so tempting. And we've been taught to find that one answer. That's how we've generally been assessed in you know university and life and society wants that quick answer. So recognizing that and then looking at our fr frameworks and having a supportive environment and community and people such as yourselves to, to follow and subscribe to. So gents, appreciate your time. I've learned a lot in this conversation, as I always do, talking to 
either of you. So for the listeners who are keen to hear more about your work and various podcasts and like 20 side projects all happening at the same time right now as we speak, um, Travis first and then Alex, where can we find you? Sure. So I'm the platform that I'm most active on, although you wouldn't know it because I never post would be Instagram, but I'm, I'm easy to contact there. So I'm, I'm fitness underscore pollinator. The, the page that I do post on is a side project or maybe not a side project of a project that I have with a friend who's a yoga teacher named Jenny Rawlings. And that Instagram page is called strength for yoga. Jenny and I also co-host a podcast called yoga meets movement science. So we put out uh, information kind of not unlike the things that we've talked about today on that podcast, particularly for yogis, but relevant for anybody who has a body and is interested in the, how that interacts with science. And then uh, last plug would be a, a, another platform that I also post on is called ACL care pro. And that's the one that I'm working on ACL return to sport kind of bridging that gap between where physical therapy leaves off and getting back to competitive sport. For me, yeah. So uh, I post the, as the the rehab podiatrist. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, maybe a little bit. Uh, all my videos are on TikTok as well. Just every platform. Um, that would be where you can find me and contact me. Uh, the podcast uh, that I work with with Kit, Real Clinicians, Real Chats. So again, Facebook and Instagram. But you can find us on pretty much any podcasting platform. Other other sort of things to follow. It's not not me, but I highly encourage everyone to go and look at the work by Course Health. So you can sign up to our course for free on podiatrysystems.com.au. Um, that's a free course, but then you also have all their other free materials as well. So like I said, you've got Dr. Oliver Thompson's chapter, you know, chapter by chapter review podcast. You've got the, their free book as well. It's a, it's a great, it's a great, it's a challenging resource, but it's a great resource. So many great options that I highly, highly recommend. So thank you both for sharing your perspectives, opinions, and having an open chat. Really appreciate it until the next one. Thank you.